0: hello everybody i'm todd fink you're listening to the kind mind podcast and this is a segment that i call live free or dialogue where i invite a guest to talk about something interesting going on in the world or in current events and today i'm really pleased to be able to introduce you to sandy gibson sandy gibson is the founder of better place forest america's first conservation memorial forest instead of graves Better Place Forest offers a sustainable alternative to cemeteries for families who choose cremation. It launched in 2017 and the 130 plus acre woodland based in San Francisco has raised more than 75 million in venture capital. And I, and Sandy's recently told me there's, there's multiple sites now, including one in Illinois where I'm at. So I'll have to check it out near Oregon, Illinois. Better Place Forest has also been featured in the New York Times and on the Today Show. Sandy also graduated from Princeton University in 2006 with an AB in history and previously served on the board of governors of Royal St. George's College. So thanks for taking time to come on the podcast, Sandy. Good to meet you.
1: Uh, well, Todd, thank you so much for having me and uh, live for your dialogue. My <laughs> best. Um, might be the best name I've heard for, for this part of a podcast so far. I appreciate that. I I
0: thought about it for a long time. And then just all of a sudden, like a light bulb went off. This is it. So, I mean, what what I like to do with this is like, really have the guest and myself, not, you know, not just do an interview, you know, not just push one idea, but kind of have like a, a spirited back and forth where we can try to, reach some insights maybe um, that are greater than the sum of our parts. And, you know, I'm happy to model and share that with with audiences because I just think we need more of that in our society. But let's begin by having you share a little bit more about what Better Place Forest is, and, and can you tell me
1: how it works? Okay, thanks. So Better Place Forests, as you mentioned, is a sustainable alternative to traditional cemeteries and funerals. We've created the concept of the first conservation memorials, where instead of a grave and a tombstone, a family is choosing conservation as part of their last choice. They're choosing a tree. That's where they're gonna spread the ashes of their family. And by choosing that tree, they're helping contribute to the purchase, endowment, and permanent protection of that forest as a protected natural space. How it works uh, to understand the context of, you know, why now, why are people doing this? You know, why hasn't someone done this before, yeah. it, that 80% of baby boomers are choosing cremation or planning to choose cremation. Now, they are not purchasing plots in traditional cemeteries the way that their parents and their grandparents did. Part of that's because of this shift towards cremation. Part of that's also because of a change in what they value and what they want. Mm-hmm. You know, One of the most popular reasons for choosing cremation is to take up less space, the other thing is that people are much more connected to nature. Now, mm-hmm. our experience, though, and the last part of that that's important is people are very rarely now in the same place they've been for generations. So it used to be that you had a family connection to a place, that it was very important to be buried in the town you grew up in. But now it's very common that you know our customers' kids live across the country. And so being buried in your local cemetery is very different because... They don't know if their kids are going to come back and visit because what we know is that people still care about ritual, right? they still need, they understand whether they know it in words or not, people understand the need for a process for their families to say goodbye. Um, and people still like a sense of place. They like knowing where they're going to be that, you know, I don't think people put it into words very often, but the way I describe it is that you'll never forget someone dying. Mm-hmm. You'll never forget their funeral. And you'll never forget the image of their final resting place. Now we can't really control how we die. Funerals, we can. We we um, are working on more creative ideas about how to inspire people to have more fun funerals and celebrations of life. But you can choose your final resting place, and you can choose it in a beautiful place. And that was the idea for Better Place Forest.
0: Thanks for sharing that, Sandy. I mean, that sounds really beautiful. What what I like, you know, when I heard about this, I was like. This this sounds really special. I want to talk to Sandy. I like that it's eco spiritual. I, I think it it preserves the rit- rituals, like you said, while giving us a, a new way to to think of this um, this rite. And I like going to cemeteries throughout my life. You know, I just I find cemeteries to be kind of magical, inspiring places. But I've heard so many stories of cemeteries being abandoned and really just like I've read some tragic articles about how they become uh, they're no longer maintained and they have to repurpose them and try to find any heirs to the to the people there. And what I realized when I was like reflecting on that and thinking about my own life, I know where my grandparents are are buried, what cemetery then. But beyond that, I I honestly have no clue. And so when I when I really think about this, like. As you said, we're a lot more disconnected. We move around, and that concept may just be outdated. But I think um, you know with climate change and with concerns about the environment, you know, this is a really positive offering. So, like, how did you come to this idea and and what motivated you to to decide, you know what? I'm going to probably you know pivot from whatever you were doing in life? you know I know you had a degree in history. So, you know, something must have sparked
1: um, some kind of shift in you to, to take this unconventional career path. So, um, so I've always been an entrepreneur. Uh, when I was in college, I think I was spending more of my time working on startup ideas than I was necessarily studying history. And, um, and you know, uh, my grandfather was an entrepreneur. My mom founded a very successful nonprofit. Uh, so I think I kind of came by it uh, honestly. And uh, I worked in software before, ran a software startup uh, with my best friend and our current co-founder and COO, Brad Milne. And, you know, it's pretty easy when you do certain jobs to wonder if there's kind of a more of a purpose to your life. And and for me, uh, you know, when I was 10, my father had a stroke and died. Um, and when I was five, my mom was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And she unfortunately finally lost that battle when, she, when I was 11. Oh, wow. So, you know, I spent my whole life going to cemeteries. And there are two things about that experience that led to here. Like, first was when it finally came time to start thinking of new ideas, I was very aware that cemeteries uh, can be beautiful, are very important, have a really important role in people's lives, but are also rarely beautiful and peaceful and private. And to me, private is a big part of that because my parents are buried very close to the street right by a bus stop. And that is just not the experience that. That I would ever want but it's also an image that I can't forget you know my mom was this very um intelligent very vibrant woman who loved pink you know all of her ball gowns and all that stuff they were always pink um and it's a it's a black granite tombstone it's just Mm -hmm. it just doesn't fit to who she was and how I want to remember her and uh just in case there's too much construction out the window uh and you know, you want to you wanna be able to go somewhere that's beautiful, that matters. And so why I think we came to this idea was two things. First is my personal experience with cemeteries. Uh, second, you know, running a software startup and having seen my mom die so young, it, for me, it was very important to know that I was working on something that I think actually matters. And having run a software startup for about seven years, I'd realized that I wasn't necessarily sure that B2B marketing automation and helping large corporations create better newsletters for their customers and their employees uh, was something that like I deeply cared about. Uh, you know, I learned something from my mom that was really interesting about life. And I, I tell this a lot when I'm doing recruiting. Uh, the story, and there's kind of three things I learned f- from seeing my mom die because, you know, the, my dad died when I was in grade five and my mom's cancer had gone into remission. So, but I think she knew that she didn't have that much time. And she spent a lot of time with me when I was 11. And I got to kind of learn three really interesting things about life from her. The first was that being great at your job actually matters. You know, you hear people say things like, uh, and it'll, I'll, I'll tie this back to why we, why we do this, but it'll kind of make sense. Uh, you hear a lot of things people say like, oh, no one ever regrets uh, working too little before they die. Right? And that might be true. That might be true. Mm. Um, but I know from my mom, that was not true. You know, my mom was very proud of what she accomplished as a lawyer. She was one of the first women to be a partner at a Canadian law firm. She was in that early generation of women who became partners. Um, she worked really, really hard. She was very proud of how good she was as a lawyer. And she spent a lot of time talking about it because to her, it mattered to know what it was like to be great at your job, to be excellent at something. And, you know, her work was what she spent the most amount of time on. Uh, so, that was something that was very important to me that i realized that whatever you do dedicate yourself to or whatever i dedicated myself to i wanted to know what it was like to be really good at it and to be good at something you have to have your full heart in it right mm-hmm. the second um thing though is having worked really really hard on our last company i realized that you also want something that's like a hill you're, you'd be proud to die on and i should find a better way of saying that but you want to start something that matters That like when you look at it and you say, because, you know, every business when it's just an idea might fail. And if you're going to spend years trying to turn into a real company, you want to know that the thing you're working on has a purpose and that if it existed in the world, you'd be really proud of it. There's a reason for it beyond just making money or, you know, having something to do every day. And I learned that because my mom, when she got cancer, she ended up starting this nonprofit called Wellspring. And it's Wellspring.ca. It's a Canadian startup. It was a Canadian startup nonprofit back in the '90s, and now it's got centers across Canada. And at those centers, cancer survivors provide counseling and support to cancer patients. And she came up with the idea because her experience of talking to hospital psychologists and asking questions like "How do I tell my kids I'm going to die?" Uh, she just got these answers that just didn't resonate with her. And when she asked the same question to a cancer survivor who could say, well, here's what I told my kids when I thought I was going to die. She realized that's the person she trusted. So she created Wellspring. There's now 12 or 13 centers across Canada. It's a wonderful, wonderful organization. And when she was dying, she said, I remember saying once to me, she's like, you know, if I never got cancer, I never would have founded Wellspring. And it was that point of she created something that lives on after her death that actually matters in the world. And so I think that's something important that was in my mind when I was thinking about new business ideas. And the last one is just life is short. You don't want to work with people you don't like. I did some of that. Uh, I wanted to, I liked when you start a company, you get to choose who you hire. You get to hire great people who share your values, who share your dreams. And we're going to work in the trenches with you to build it. Um, and, you know, my best friends are COO. And I was thinking about those three things. And, you know, when we were thinking about new ideas, I'd read a book called Cradle to Cradle, uh, which is about uh, how do you build kind of sustainable business models and sustainable design. Sustainable architecture had just my mind spinning, and you know, I think going to the cemetery, it all kind of came together at that moment. That's really
0: inspiring, Sandy. You know, a lot of people want to know how to find their purpose. In my experience, and also listening to you, it sounds like it's not like you go out and you just choose at a buffet, like what your purpose is, it's kind of I think in some respects, our, our what could be our purpose almost chooses us, like life unfolds in a particular manner, and that gives you a certain kind of perspective or insight into life. And you, like you said, life is short, and there's a million distractions, and there's also expectations and pressures from society about what you're supposed to do. Um, but anything else you would say to people who are like, hey, Sandy, how do I... How do I find my purpose or how do I find meaning in the work that I'm going to do like you did and like your mom was able to do?
1: So, you know, I think the traditional, not super long traditional, because Viktor Frankl only wrote it in maybe the 40s. Uh, I think he wrote a late 40s after World War II. Man's Search for Meaning talks about how do you find meaning and you find meaning in doing, in experiencing the deepest experience, of which is love, and in overcoming mm-hmm. unavoidable suffering. And um, have you talked about Man's Search for Meaning and Viktor Frankl on your podcast before? A little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm reflecting because I love the book. So, so somewhere, somewhere in
0: those in, in these in, past episodes, I'm sure I've touched on it.
1: If anyone's written hasn't uh, hasn't heard you talk about it or is, is new to the podcast, <laughs> uh, you know, Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist in Vienna <laughs> in the 1930s who had come up with a new theory. Um, that he thought was going to be the third great Viennese school of psychotherapy, and his, his new theory was called logotherapy, and which means meaning therapy. And his idea was that, you know, people need meaning to survive, mm. and that's what's unique. And if you can find your meaning in your suffering, you can you can endure almost anything. Uh, and there was an example of it when an old colleague of his came in to his office, and he he said, Victor, I. I can't get through it. My wife has died and I cannot wake up in the day. I cannot find a purpose in life. I am so sad all the time. And he asked this one very short question. He said, I forget the name of the, the man who he was speaking to, but he said, What would have happened to your wife if you had died first? And he says, It would have been horrible. It would have been the worst thing in the world. You know, I don't know. I, she couldn't have bared it. And then Viktor Frankl says to him, Well, then maybe. Maybe it's good that she died first and you're the one who has to live with this. And immediately the man was smiled and was able to walk away and never came back in because this horrible, horrible thing, suddenly he found a balance. I think it's like that equal and opposite reaction concept of, you know, a law of nature. And it's like this horrible thing happens. And the only real thing that you can do with that amount of pain and negative energy is to find some purpose in it. And sometimes that's just becomes our cross to bear. Um, right. I, think that's, I think that's good. So Viktor Frankl, unfortunately, uh, 1938, him and his wife were sent to Auschwitz uh, by the Nazis, and uh, he survived the Holocaust. His wife did not. And he wrote Man's Search for Meaning as his memoir of the Holocaust. Uh, of the Holocaust. And um, it, is, it is an exceptional book. It is obviously anything about the Holocaust is very hard to read. But this book is so inspiring, so insightful, very short, um, deeply meaningful, highly recommend it. And so I do think the answer for meaning, you know, for my mom, who was quite religious, she asked the question, why did God do this to me? And then one day, literally, it just dawned on her when she was thinking about her experience and asking these questions. And she realized she was in the position in Canada that she could probably start something like Wellspring. She found um, some old family friends who happened to own a property that they said Wellspring could use, and they donated it. She knew the doctors to get the support from the hospital. She knew other donors. She knew how to put a board together. Uh, you know, she was 38 years old, diagnosed with cancer, doing all this stuff, but she was in a position where she could. And that was the moment she realized, Oh, that's the purpose. That's why this happened. And so I think when people are looking for purpose, you know, I don't know all the ways you can find it. I'm sure you can find it lots of ways, but I figure it's probably a mix of finding something that you're uniquely good at in the world or finding an experience that's unique to you and, and creating something good out of it. Uh, another thing that. on... Sorry, i will got one more thing before we go on. Yeah, no problem. Uh, I, heard, I heard once one of... Uh, a friend of mine, when someone very close to her died and she grew up in a religious family, uh, someone had said that they had heard that at the end of all our lives we're asked two questions. What did you learn? And how much did you love? And I think the thing that inspires us to learn very frequently is the pain that we've experienced or the hardship that we've had to overcome. And on love, that's the other side of it. If you can truly find something you can love that can make you a living, that can take care of a family and friends and, you know, give you pride and, you know, all those things, then fabulous. But often it comes from something which we know is hard that we've been able to get over, that I think we can turn into something good in the world.
0: A lot of great insights there, Sandy, and I, I. I do really love Man's Search for Meaning, and it's a book I come back to every so often because it's so extraordinary. And you also touched on on something else that that relates to this uh, segment of of the podcast, the logotherapy, the therapy for finding meaning is. Like I like etymology, the looking at the origins of words and. Um, live free or dialogue has this word dialogue, which is also Greek dialogos, two people looking for meaning together. So I, I like that connection, but
1: also it, it stirred something else those, up in me. I didn't know that was what dialogue came from. And I think that it's pretty cool. View, it's like pretty at, interesting when you think about that, yeah. kind of, you can ask the question, are we having a dialogue? Are we looking for shared meaning or are we not? Right. Like if we're not trying to find some shared answer here. It's not really a dialogue now, is it
0: right? I mean, so so that's that's pretty different than like debate or even discussion, which has its origins into like tear apart actually to fight and, you know, to, to try to strip the other person away or something like that. Um, and, you know, that, you know, that's that's kind of the pattern that so many people fall into really attempting to prove something to another, to convince somebody of, uh, of something they believe or to judge another to, to win basically. But dialogue is special in the sense that there's a space, each person holds a space for growth and for evolution. And, and, and the whole reason you're having the conversation is you feel like maybe together we could see further into the horizon. I had so, a
1: yeah. cool. I was funny story about that. That I find interesting. I had a class in my first class in college called a biography of energy, about a history of a history of the world's energy use and where it's going. Mm. Fascinating, fascinating class uh, by this professor emeritus. And uh, I remember I grew up in Canada where we've got very very good debating programs. Uh, you know, former British Empire, they're big into debating. Very good at it. Uh, listen to you know listen to speeches and. Uh, British Parliament versus uh, American Congress. And you'll see they're very, very good at debate. Uh, But there tends to be a spirit of, I have to win my argument, but also like there's learning and discussion. There's some dialogue in there. Uh, And I remember just going into a class at one point and talking about something and the teacher went, Sandy, where are you from? I said, I'm from Toronto. I went, okay, you probably did a lot of debating competitively. And I said, yeah. He's like, you can't do that in this environment. You're not trying to win we're trying to have a discussion. I think mean, you said dialogue, but dialogue would be the perfect yeah. word. And it was an right. interesting
0: point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is,
1: yeah. and that's you know sometimes that's what people
0: you know mean or want to mean with a discussion. But yeah, like words, words matter, and I also you know when we understand the origins of words, it's almost like we can reconnect to purpose as well. I mean, purpose is another word I love. The the root pose I think also comes from Latin. But this pose is in like repose or equal pose. So it has something to do with rest and P U R, the, the prefix means forward or in the future. So I think a purpose as that which will really give you rest at the end of your life. It'll give you peace or satisfaction at the end with the understanding. I did what I could basically in the way that you described your mother's passing that there was, there was a sense that she didn't waste the time
1: that she had, even though it didn't seem like enough. And and so like that that word is is really special. I think that is a very interesting way of looking at the word purpose. And that is very much her. Like she was dying very young, but she knew that she'd, she knew she'd accomplished an enormous thing.
0: Yeah. And that's special. I, you know, I, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to lose both my parents as early as you did I lost a, a grandmother when I was really young and that was enough for me to start thinking deeply about death. And I noticed that whenever somebody you love dies it immediately stirs up all these difficult emotions. And there can even be anger, you know, like you talked about like questioning God or the the meaning of life. Hey, why why did I lose this person? Or even, you know, with Dr. Frankel and the, the person who lost the spouse. But it's almost like without this sort of existential inquiry, you know, we, we just kind of overlook that, hey, nobody gets out of this world alive. You know, all we know for sure is that we're going to die. And it's going to be less than 120 years from now, you know, yeah. unless something. I mean, maybe maybe the future would be different, but you know, till till now. And it's almost because of that brevity that life takes on actually so much meaning and has so much spiritual potential. I mean, I know like Google's trying to solve the problem of death. They have a division called Calico, California Life Company, and. You know, they're looking, there's like essentially six ways humans die, uh, d- different biological changes, and and maybe it'll be possible that we live forever. But But imagine that, Sandy, like now, you know, you could live for a thousand years. What does that do to meaning? What does that do to purpose? You know, I can like waste my first hundred years and, you know, and <laughs> you know what I mean? And also... So, now that I, I'm not going to die of natural causes within 100 years, now the only way I can die is an accident. So, then how does that change, you know, risk-reward? You know, like right now, like I do things, or throughout my life, I go on adventures, I've traveled around the world, and I know that, you know, doing those things, your, your mortality risk probably is spiking, but I also know I have limited time. And, and so th- those are risks that I'm happy to take, knowing that
1: I can go at any time. But anyways, I want to see what you thought about some of that. There's an interesting point on that. The first, so, you know, what is the purpose of death? And, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about memento mori. Um, remember, you're mortal. Remember, you die. Mm. And it's often brought up in the context of people saying like, oh, memento mori, like, Pete, that's. That's how the Romans were reminded that life is short, which is not actually true, I believe. I'm pretty sure the origins of Memento Mori was, it was the slave who set it into the ear of the conquering general re-entering through a triumphal arch mm. in Rome. And the, the only time you were allowed to enter Rome with an army was after you'd won a massive battle and it was very, very rare. And so they would come in and the, the, the slave would say, Memento Mori, and it was the point would say, remember, you are immortal. You are not a god which is very different from what people generally, in modern terms, they say, Mori, they remember we die. So who knows? That's kind of just a, a an interesting like story that I thought was different than what most people think. I think when you think about death and the purpose, I, there's two parts to it that I think are important. The first is d- there's only one thing in the world. So they used to think that death was necrotic, meaning like death was because your cells died and all of your cells would die. And they were studying it And they realize, they're like, you know, it's really weird. Death is a switch in a lot of our cells. They get told to turn off. You know, you can have necrosis in your brain, which will kill you. And then the rest of your brain goes, oh, you're off. Or when your heart stops, the rest of your brain, the rest of your cells get a message that says, okay, turn off. And it's an off switch. And what's interesting is there's only one thing, one type of cell that doesn't have that off switch. And it's cancer. Cancer is the only thing that doesn't have a natural end to its lifespan. And cancer is generally not a good thing. right?
0: And they have cancer cells from patients, uh, you know, from nearly a century ago that they can continue to study cancer with because you're right, because cancer cells do not turn off. It's almost like. Yeah. It, 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 it's their desire or you could say to continue that actually causes the problem in, in the well, so whole this organism.
1: Is, yeah. This is a bit of the issue with, I think, this idea of, you know, we should wouldn't it be great if we all live forever? Mm-hmm. It, there's a reason nature didn't design it that way. Mm. Um, is part one. We don't know what would happen to the world if certain people did get to live forever. You know, I, I do think there's a genuine risk there. Um, there have been some very powerful people who are not necessarily good in the world. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that them living 200 years would have been wonderful for the world. Um, also, you know, we have changing of seasons, and we always have. Um, so you're like this whole idea of like maybe we should all live forever is is a very interesting concept, but also very an enormous change to how the world works and has always worked. Um, and I do think there's an important part of life and finding purpose and meaning of saying, well, what's happening in my life? You know, you think about Viktor Frankl's approach to meaning, it's to find what happened to you, the hardest thing that ever happened to you and find purpose in it. You know, there's a bit of go with the flow in that concept. And I think it's the same as when people are, when people are looking for an idea for a business to start. And they ask me, how do you find a great, great idea for a business? I've got, a, you know, a few different things that I think are important, identifying if a business is a good idea. But the first thing is, well, what do you know? What do you personally know really well that other people might not know? Or Peter Thiel is known for asking that question. It's like, what's something you know is true that everyone thinks is not? It's it's a question. Those questions go into like, who are you? Why are you the person to solve this? That's something VCs, for example, really care about. Now, they care about largely because that's important to press and stories and media coverage. But it's also because there is a desire for people to know like, why are you the one to solve this problem? And usually that comes from a deep personal experience.
0: Yeah, those are good points. So I've been, I mean, this this conversation fits in well with where I've been going lately with the podcast. Um, I've been exploring the taboos around death. Like, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, everything we're talking about, like, are realities of life with with death and dying but people don't accept it and even though we have all these spiritual traditions that give us hope give us meaning give us wisdom give us rituals to help the 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 ones who grieve the deceased we still spend like almost the majority of all the expenditures in healthcare happen in the last year even in the last 30 days of life now nearly 90% of the planet believe in a higher power and therefore believe that something continues after death and yet that doesn't that doesn't really align with the the expenditures so i'm wondering you know, what's still missing, you know, like with our spirituality that we're just still seemingly so unprepared for that transition. And, and maybe like, what's come up for you since you've been doing this work. And I mean, I would imagine, you know, part of, part of your work is, is counseling too, you know, because you're trying to explain to people how this alternative, the, the process that you're offering, how this alternative can still help a person in their final days feel some peace about the transition and their legacy, and help families feel like, yeah, this is this is gonna this is gonna help me be able to heal and honor the legacy of my loved one. But
1: what do you think? So, I guess there's there's a few things to unpack. The first one is yeah, it's a loaded. Why is our why is our culture so scared of talking about death? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a really good book, the one the Pulitzer in 1974 called The Denial of Death by Ernest yeah, Becker.
0: I've read that one too. Sandy. It's a real good one.
1: And I think his point that, you know, the human being is the only animal that we know of today that has a mind that is separate from its body. Meaning that it underst- the mind understands the body is separate from the mind. And the body, the mind is terrified of the fact that the body is going to die and it really, really, really doesn't like it. And so its argument is that much of our culture and our activities in life is an immortality project for the mind
0: mm-hmm.
1: to try to feel like it can overcome death. Mm-hmm. That was his hypothesis. I think it's quite compelling. Interestingly, apparently one of Bill Clinton's favorite books. And uh, I think that's a very compelling concept. You know, it, it says that many of the mind's projects our efforts to be a part of something that is greater than ourselves, something that will live on after us. And if we have, depending on our personality and who we are, some people try to become heroes. Some people try to become anti-heroes. You know, I think one of the big mistakes that we've made in society, I remember after uh, after the Las Vegas shooting, mass shooting in Las Vegas, the country concert, the New York Times uh, published an article and they studied the brain of the shooter and they were shocked to find there was nothing weird about it like someone would only do that mass murder because something had broken in the brain that we could see um which was like a very very unusual way to look at a problem to say like oh there must have been something physically wrong with his brain to do that the other way to think about that though is that is a very dark and anti-hero and evil form of living forever particularly when we report their names in newspapers uh, and unfortunately, I think that is a bit of a trope that we have, and that is why we have a lot of these mass shootings, is it is, it is an effort in that immortality project. Um, and we it's need a disturbing more... discovery, Jeez. I haven't thought about it like that. It's a dark way to think about it, but I think yeah. it's, probably, it's the most correct way that I've perceived mm-hmm. it.
0: And the... Which says that there's something uh, disorderly about the, the psychology of the society.
1: Well, not necessarily. The other way to think about it is that you need immortality projects that are good, that people know how they can contribute to, and they often feel thwarted in those efforts. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's one of the things that we can do. You know, you think about what are are characteristics of these folks. And I have no idea. I am not an expert on this. I'm literally just parroting an idea that I'd read. But, you know, when someone's part of a group, they feel that group's going to live on. And that's good contribute to the group and it will live on and so when people have or a family or children all these things i think those are important and so i think part of the ability to say i lived a good life it's time for me to go is a feeling that you've been a part of something right Uh, you see how often military vets how incredibly important it is that they are buried in a military cemetery or what we see with better place forests often they'll choose a forest And it is incredibly important that they have military insignia carved into their marker
0: Mm.
1: because there is a deep and everlasting pride in that association. And I think a lot of our fear of death is the lack of those connections, the lack of the feeling that, like you said, what will, what will put you at rest? Your purpose, you know, what will make you feel at the end of your life? Like I have lived a good life. I think a lot of the fear of death is people's fear that maybe they haven't. And I think some of that is a lack of appreciation for what is good. Sorry, we got a train passing by me in case. Okay. That's... And I think we just have to think about life, like what is uh, what accomplishments have we had that are good? Um, you know because most people have had many. They've had done things that were important, done things that were special, done things that were part of history. And as a society, we don't always appreciate those and make people feel appreciated for them.
0: Yeah, so uh, yeah, I appreciate that that perspective i was talking with somebody who had a near-death experience in my last dialogue and he was saying you know at that moment where things were ending in his body the pain uh, like regretful pain wasn't coming from like wishing that this immortality project had been more successful but but it became like very striking that like there was an opportunity to really love my children more or to be present with my spouse so somehow it's like we got to strike a balance between the anti-hero and, you know, maybe the, the, the greedy uh, billionaire or something like that, or um, the Lex Luthor, let's say, um, where meaning, you know, like, like you're saying, like meaning. And, and you know, what, what else is kind of beautiful about this idea with the forest is like the forest also isn't permanent or, or a tree isn't permanent. But I mean, you take anyone from history, Sandy, and you take any immortality project of the past, you take even someone like Alexander the Great, that's like as successful materialist speaking as a human being could be, like owning the whole known Western world at the time. By the time and, you're in your 30s. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and it, I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, I mean, maybe it does to historians, right? But like for the average person... um. You know maybe it's a footnote in a class to them or something but and, and same with their own line so it's like you have a family you have children and a lot of people feel drawn to that with the sense that you know i'll live on in my kids and yet like i don't know beyond my great grandparents i I can't name those people so it's almost like look you you have a family or you you engage in the immortality project but at the end of the day it shouldn't be an ego trip. It ought to be something that, you know, like fulfills this like window of time here and gives you what, you know, like what we were saying, that that sense of of ease when it's time to transition to whatever happens, you know, afterwards. I
1: think the, Yeah, go ahead. What I've heard on that that I liked the most, the, the, the closest thing to a purpose for life that I've re- read and heard was those two questions. What did you learn and how much did you love? Yeah. And, you know, on the I like that. On the question of, you know, what is the purpose uh, or like uh, you mentioned immortality projects. Do you know uh, uh, Ozymandias, the poem? Uh, Vaguely, I've heard of it, but yeah, could you refresh Uh, my memory in the audience? Hold it up. It's I met a traveler from an antique land who said Mm -hmm. two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert near them on the sand. Half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of old command. Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And it's you know it comes up often. It's the point of like there's nothing nothing we can build that lasts forever. And so he was you know in the poem the most powerful of kings, and you know all he is is a broken statue that no one had heard about. Exactly. I mean that's the sands of time. So I do think of it very much when you're thinking about meaning and purpose. I like the idea of that question of what did you learn and how much did you love, and I like it because love is to the to that meaning of happiness. It's like at the end of your life, I imagine you regret not being happy in the moments that mattered. You know, I've, I remember being times hanging around my best friends and now I've lived away from them for years and years. And I don't think I fully appreciated how special it was to be around my best friends from middle school and high school. Yeah, I've had that sense as well. You know, and not realizing, not looking around that moment, be like, hey, enjoy it. Mm-hmm. This is probably never going to happen again. Um, and that, you know, that's one thing to really enjoy it. I haven't seen my godparents. Who I'm very close with because they were very, very close to me uh, after my parents died, and like I haven't been able to go back to Canada and visit them because of COVID, and they're they're older, and you know there's quarantines. You know, it's kind of enjoy those moments, enjoy the love that's really important. You don't want to feel you missed those. At the same time, what did you learn? I do think that's part of the point of hardship. Like that's how we learn hard things. Mm-hmm. Now, when you think about uh, you mentioned billionaires. You think about a really, really successful billionaire. And to me, that would be um, Andrew Carnegie, right? Andrew Carnegie built the biggest steel company in the, built Carnegie Steel. And then that I believe that le- merged into U.S. Steel. Um, and I was reading something recently and it was, it was about New York. It was about public libraries. And it was like, oh, imagine a world where the government built public libraries. And I remember kind of smiling and being like, well, actually, that was Carnegie, right? That wasn't, that wasn't a politician who said that's a good idea. That was an individual who made an enormous amount of money and then said, I am going to spend all of my efforts figuring out how to invest my capital into things that matter for the world. And to me, that I'm sure, who knows, but I imagine at the end of his life, he very much felt that he learned some very, very important things. And those learnings mattered in the world.
0: Yeah, I like that. And when you connect that to love, I mean, love's almost like a light that you like give from one candle to another. It's not clear where, you know, where the origin is, but it's going, it's continuing. It's like every every time we love or give our love to another, that goes on, that lives on, that spark continues to spread. And when it's in the work, the good works that we do, you know, it, it may never be known where where it came from or how it originated like I, I didn't know what you just said about carnegie um but i'm benefiting you know maybe
1: benefiting from but it lives from on that. but it lives on and, correct and i think that um there's a are you a big zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance fan
0: i'm not a big fan but you know i appreciate i appreciate the book
1: yeah the, the
0: sense of quality
1: I think his idea that quality is the eternal, quality is the thing the Greeks looked for, that what is the eternal? Mm. His proposal that quality, which was translated, arete, which was translated as virtue, and he proposes was incorrectly translated. He says, it's not virtue, oh. it's quality. I like that. And his idea that like really true quality things live forever. And for me personally, I believe that that's very true. I, if I saw it with my mom and how unbelievably important the, the achievements she'd had in her career were, were to her as she was dying, right? And she could have easily spent the end of her life being very unhappy with the fact that she was dying with two young children whose father had just died. So like, that's, that's probably one of the harder things someone can go through in their life um, for her. And yet she was very proud of these things that she'd accomplished and felt so good about them. And I think that's because of quality. And I think the, you know, the truest experience quality that everyone hopefully gets to experience is love uh, between a parent and a child or at the very least if you have a pet you know like I, I kind of wonder sometimes if that's one of the reasons why people who grew up with a particularly tough home is the feeling of like not having ever had that love must be really hard because it's this one thing that almost everyone got and i think that that's probably a very isolating painful experience but i think that love is something that we can all experience and when you think about that love It can be love of sports. It can be love of all sorts of things. But when you really get to do it, I think that quality lives on.
0: Yeah, I I like that. So do any of your clients... uh, Well, so first of all, does one tree um, symbolize
1: one... It can be a person or a family. Okay, okay.
0: Do you get clients ever ask you about the life of the tree?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. You get people are very interesting. Some people want trees that live as long as possible. Other people want Aspens that have a much shorter lifespan, but but are part of, you know, an Aspen is part of a living entity that can live for tens of thousands of years because they share the same root system. just stems in a new root system. Everyone's different what they want. I think everyone appreciates the idea that nature is a cycle and they've returned that cycle of life. Uh, Some people want a tree like a redwood that can live for, you know, almost 2000 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have to admit I'm one of those people. I have a very large redwood. <laughs> I love
0: redwoods. I, I would a probably pick a redwood because I was born in California, but but not because of the longevity. It is I love the tree. But but I also like that the tree isn't eternal. You know, I, I I like however long, you know, trees obviously outlive humans by a lot on average. But but what we find is that people don't really preserve in general, the graves of five, six, seven generations ago. In the past, it was different. Like you said, when everyone stayed in the same community and there was this long lineage, and maybe in other cultures, it's still like that today. But since we kind of know in modern times it's different, it's nice to know like this forest itself is a sanctuary. And yeah, for as long as you want to honor the particular tree, that's that's beautiful. But in the end, this whole forest that you're you know, helping to
1: create, Sandy, is a sanctuary. It's like a temple. It's a temple in nature. It's something that we hear from all of our customers, and that I totally agree with you is really important, is that the tree as a monument, you know, there's a marker with your name on it, and that's important to folks. You know, no one ever comes out saying that it's really important, but everyone asks the details. You know it's important to folks. Mm-hmm. Um, the tree as a living monument is a beautiful symbol particularly when you're choosing it for someone you loved or you're thinking about it as a place for someone you love to come back to. But for a lot of customers, what we hear as well is that knowing that they protected the space is part of their legacy in the world yes. and they're proud. And that's why we call it a conservation memorial. It's that your memorial in the earth is giving back to the earth. It's conserving land. And I think that's a really special thing to get to do. It's, it's something that often you can't do because it's so expensive. If you wanted to do it on your own but here you get to do it and these forests are particularly beautiful because we go in we restore them we restore native species and native flowers we add pathways that make them accessible Uh, there's very light architectural touches that make it particularly beautiful and i think that blend of humanism and nature and conservation is something that's really special and really unique that people can feel proud to be a part of
0: have you um have you ever heard of Zoroastrian funeral rites, Sandy? You, you may have heard of Zoroastrianism. It's one of the oldest religions on the planet, but they have something called a dakhma. It's a the tower of silence, and the deceased are placed on top of this structure. It's the circular tower, and in, in the past, it was specifically for the vultures, and uh, it's a very like sobering rite, but it was considered, but the, the people were happy about it. it was considered their last act of charity, meaning like they're feeding nature um, they also considered just like a rotting corpse to be not necessarily like just totally fertilizing the environment so there was a sp- specific right with this and and there's other similar rituals like there's some Buddhist rituals called sky funerals where they put the body up on a cliff or high up and, and, and some in farther East Asia do something like this just to bring a person's soul closer to heaven. But the reason why I bring some of these up is because that, that concept has been there throughout history, that there could be a last act of charity in the funeral itself. And that made some people really peaceful before they died, especially if there were things that felt unresolved or if a person felt still somewhat unfulfilled in terms of purpose, like we were saying before. And I bet, you know, as you've talked about what you've created, you know, maybe you're sitting at dinner and you're like, yeah, I'm doing better for us or better place for us when people are like, so what do you do, Sandy? You probably hear some people say like, well, well, why would we need that? We have, we have cemeteries you're, or, or re, maybe, uh, Western religious people from Abrahamic traditions might feel like, no, you're supposed to be buried or you're supposed to be cremated in this particular way. But throughout the world, nature funerals have existed since there have been funerals. And, and I find it fascinating to see that they, they correspond to the four elements. Obviously, we have burials, putting people back to the earth. We have these sky funerals I was talking about, like the Tower of Silence, like the cliff. Uh, in the Philippines, there's some indigenous people that hang coffins actually from mountains and just let it break apart that way. Vikings had water funerals, put candles on a little raft and send the deceased loved one out to sea. And of course, we have fire rituals, cremations. But what's beautiful about Better Place Forest is that it allows for all of these rituals. So yeah, people think of maybe what they've been familiar with or exposed to in Western religious tradition or Christianity, but even Christianity's burial is not is not how it w- the origins were. I. In my understanding, there was some cultural exchange with Germanic peoples of the north who followed Norse mythology and believed in this world tree called Yggdrasil. And part of the mythology of those northern people was that the, when the world ends, it, we all are um, absorbed into a cosmic tree. And the evergreens were a symbol of this cosmic tree that we're all existing in. So the coffin was actually a symbol of the trunk of Yggdrasil. And we have these evergreens not because of Jesus's birth at Christmas time, but because of these cultural exchanges to get people in the North missions were getting them to adopt Christianity and worshiping Christ in exchange for people coming uh, from other parts of Europe and the Middle East to be able to say, okay, you know, maybe there's something to a world tree. We'll put up an evergreen and, and we'll bury people. And that was, that was actually, I think the beginning of burials so, this idea that there was ever one way to have a funeral rite is is a little bit um, misunderstood anyway, so I think th- what you 're doing is a natural spiritual um, ecological envir- environmentally sound like evolution of um, this important this important right i mean the the funeral right is has been important for us to make sense and to heal and to grieve and to connect with our communities throughout history so it's been you know it's been awesome to be able to learn more about it and to share these ideas and, and explore further with you so thanks a lot Sandy. Fine, thank you um how how can uh, people listening to the podcast connect with you or follow you if you have social media and, and most importantly where could they learn more about your work and participate if they, if they were so inclined?
1: Well, if anyone wants to learn more about Better Place Forests, you can find us at betterplaceforests.com. Uh, we currently have forests throughout California, uh, from up in Mendocino to Yosemite and Santa Cruz and, and down in Lake Arrowhead. Those are
0: beautiful our- counties, too, in California.
1: We are lucky. We get, to, we get to do a lot of traveling to beautiful places to go find these forests. Uh, we're also in Minnesota. We're in Illinois. We're in Massachusetts. Uh, and we're in Connecticut, but we do plan on expanding across the country. So I encourage everybody who's curious to learn more at betterplaceforus.com. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at Better Place For Us. You can find us on Twitter as well. Um, and I hope we, some of the ideas we've shared today are are great, and I really appreciate, Todd, you for including me on your podcast. It's been a pleasure. I hope to connect
0: again. And for those um, listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify Just a reminder, you could also watch this episode if you prefer on YouTube at uh, my YouTube channel at Michael Todd Fink. So thank you and thanks, Sandy. Best wishes with the work that you're doing and um, looking forward to connecting again with you in the future. You take care.
1: Thank you.